1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories, to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.
2: It's happened one too many times across the lower mainland. An overheight truck striking an overpass causing a collision, this time on the North Shore. And police are now investigating after the driver left the scene. The owner of the transport truck has been fined $368 for failing to remain on the scene. Police also confirmed the company is not complying with the investigation.
1: Yeah, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was Global News reporter Sophia Pirani on the latest truck overpass collision in Metro. Yes, here we go again. It keeps happening. Over and over again, this is the 10th truck overpass collision this year. Why does it keep happening? Are the fines too low? Is that the problem here, that there's no adequate... Deterrent? Now, the trucking company here has been suspended pending an investigation. Whistler 99 Courier and Freightways. This company now shut down. The license has been pulled uh, pending this investigation. This company runs 22 trucks. All of those trucks now ordered off the road. As you heard in that report, the RCMP disclosing yesterday, this company, it was fined $368 for the hit and run let's discuss it now with my guest paul doroshenko traffic lawyer acumen law very pleased to welcome him back hey paul thanks for coming on today
0: yeah good morning mike
1: okay paul what what goes through the mind of a truck driver who slams his rig into an overpass and then he lambs it just takes off what what is going on there have you ever heard of that before
0: well, I mean, it's he's trying to avoid responsibility, right? And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what are the typical reasons? I, I I've had a long uh, history of uh, relationship with the hit and run squad in Vancouver, and we've often discussed the reasons that people leave the scene of an accident. And uh, I mean, it's it is to avoid responsibility, right? Uh, uh, but ultimately, is it because he was on his cell phone? Uh, was he drinking? Um, you know, was he just so n- new and terrified and shocked? And that does happen. Uh, yeah. You know, he, did he realize that he is was uh, 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 not following the route that was permitted by the permit if it was an oversized load? I mean, you know, you, you wonder what's going on through someone's head at that moment. But, you know, the thing is, when you leave the scene of an accident, if you don't, in this case, it may not be criminal, right? Because it could just be property damage. But if you hit another vehicle, for example, and you leave the scene of an accident, most of the time there's video these days uh they there's lots of different ways that the police can prove it and uh and when they do you know you end up in front of a judge and you're facing a jail sentence even the first time out.
1: okay yeah not exactly the perfect crime here for sure especially when you leave the truck behind and it's got the name of the trucking company right on the side here's what i'm wondering though paul for your thoughts what about the fines here are these fines too low like 368 bucks for leaving the scene of an accident. You've caught you've caused Carmageddon traffic jam with this one, like a lot of these do. There have been even lower fines for earlier incidents. Let's listen to Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger speaking to me about this point on an earlier show. Let's listen. The incident that happened on 192nd Street in July of last
3: year, $115 fine for over a million dollars in damage.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Give me a break here. What do you think the fine should be?
3: Well, I know the well, province the three- is
1: working on this, in fairness
3: to them. I would encourage them in that process, but it has to be punitive.
1: Okay, $115 fine in that example. Paul, your thoughts?
0: Well, I mean, $115, that's the the failing to abide by the permit, by the sounds of it. Um, $368 in this case was a registered owner ticket, so it's not even a, something that shows up on the driver's license. It's, it's just a, you know money out of your pocket. Um, you know, are these fines a disincentive? Uh, we look at fines a lot of the time and it's hard to it's hard to sort of connect them with the economic realities of our world, especially when you look at the damage. I mean, that that yeah. overpass that we know of just a, 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 um, south of night Street still hasn't been repaired uh, because it's probably going to cost millions and millions of dollars. And engineers are trying to figure it out. Um, the um, the fines are really disproportionate with the damage caused. But think about the other economic consequences in this case for this company. You know, they may have a huge insurance problem because your insurance is typically void if you do things like, you know, maybe void if you do things like leave the scene of an accident. So, you know, if you've caused a million dollars damage in those circumstances, who's actually picking up the bill? Um, You know, I, I don't know that the fine, I think the, you know, like the public humiliation, the fear of doing the damage should be the thing that is the disincentive in this case. But I mean, if the public's looking at it There's not a whole lot of confidence in the system when you see a fine that's $115, when you've blocked up traffic for six hours, uh, caused a a half million dollars damage to a structure. uh, And, uh, and, you know, it, it, it does not inspire confidence. And it makes people think that the justice system is really not hitting the mark here.
1: Okay, here's the other question. Why is this happening over and over again? We have seen a rash of these, 10 so far this year listen to andy roberts here andy runs a truck driver training school mountain transport institute and listen to the point he makes here about inexperienced drivers behind the wheels of these trucks let's listen
4: baby boomers are retiring and and the average age of a truck driver is is high and and uh, as those people retire and the less experienced drivers get some of these jobs i, I think the knowledge and the experience just isn't being passed down through the ranks
1: Paul, do you think that is a factor that we've got a lot of drivers here who are getting behind the wheels, sometimes these big, giant 18-wheeler 18-wheel, wheel rigs without a lot of road time, without a lot of experience?
0: I think, of course, that is one factor, but there's a lot of different factors. And, I, I, you know, look at the the provincial government has now created a website to track this, right, because it's such a serious problem. Yeah. It does correspond with people relying on their phones for directions, uh, or people just using their phones. This, uh, I mean, of course, you know, we all tend to forget uh, historical news, but I don't remember it being like this 20 years ago. Uh, and it just seems to me that it is likely connected to people relying on electronic devices for directions mm. or distracted by their phone. You know, the one in Richmond where the guy had the box up. You and I talked about that. There was a caller who called in and said, like, you you can't drive your vehicle like that. There's an alarm going off. You know, I I just cannot see how that can happen. Um, And uh, you had a caller on the show the other day who said, like, maybe we should have some sort of uh, uh, piece of pipe hanging uh, 100 meters before the bridge. So if you hit that piece of pipe, at least you get some sort of notification. Warning. Warning. Your truck driver. Yeah, early warning warning system. Well, I mean, there are places around the world where this is a chronic problem at a certain bridge. And so they have flashing lights and a yeah. sensor for a height sensor and you're thinking to yourself like what is the cost of that versus the cost of repairing that bridge enrichment for example right um you know it, it's probably two hundred thousand dollars to set up a, a a warning system on either side of the bridge and it's probably 10 million dollars to replace that bridge and okay it looks like they're going to have to replace that bridge right
1: Paul Doroshenko is my guest. We're talking about the latest truck highway overpass collision here. This one, I I hit and run. Now, speaking of whether this happened, used to happen 20 years ago, it does seem like it's happening a heck of a lot more now. So I have another listen to Andy Roberts. He runs a truck driver training school, and on this precise point, he says this has gotten worse over time. Have
4: a listen. In the good old days, as we say, um, you couldn't walk out of a driver training school and get into a class one vehicle. You would start in a smaller five-ton truck or something like that and you'd work your way up through the ranks. More trucking companies popped up and and they needed drivers and they hired uh, people with, uh, with less experience.
1: Hey, Paul Doroshenko is my guest. We're talking about the latest truck highway overpass collision. Let's go right to your phone calls here. John in the North Shore. Hey John, go ahead.
4: I hope you can hear me. I've I've only got a few bars. So there's so many things that are at play here. First of all, the company that shipped that container should have known the height before it went on the truck and they should be held responsible as well. Secondly, half the guys that are driving around have headsets on so that they can talk all day long on their phones Mm. and they can't hear an alarm. They can't hear anything.
0: They've got this headset on.
1: Oh, that's very is, that's very interesting, yeah. Paul. What about that? Is that legal? Can you can drive around with a headset on, right, and talking your phone over a headset?
0: You're only supposed to have one ear covered at any time, uh, mm. normally, if you're using an electronic device. But yeah, I think that's an issue. I mean, I do see people, truck drivers, in the lower mainland, just talking the entire time, and there's no passenger in the vehicle, so they're on sure. the phone the entire time, on a call the entire time. That's no, not um, that's not
1: illegal though, right?
0: No. No, yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it is a distraction, especially when yeah. it's, you know, you're you're speaking to f- five of your relatives at any given time or whoever, you know, it, 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 you're not focused on focusing on your job. Right. It's a job. It's not just you driving your car, you know, okay. going to work or something like that. You're actually doing your job. Paul and Suri.
1: Hi, Paul. Go ahead.
4: Hi there. I'm just like the first caller, though. Like I'm a trucker. Like every time I see they're always on the phone. Non-stop call. Like I have a dispatcher; they're calling them, and they can't even get a hold of them. And they have to text them sometimes, like where to pick up some container. Like I don't know what they're doing though. Like I mean, I'm an immigrant; I'm brown. Like they've been calling. I would say India, non-stop. Friends. what well, do you call? Do you talk? Whatever.
1: So, what do you? What about when you're behind the wheel? Do you talk on your phone?
4: I do talk on the phone, but I pull over. I just talk to the wife, like what's for dinner, what's where the kids are. <laughs> But then I just yeah. drive after that, like, I don't want to get a ticket or like, it's just pure destruction, though. Like, have okay. you heard heard about these containers, like, tipping on the curb? Because they're mm. destruction, you know, like, they're out of focus.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul, for the call. Nash in Richmond. Hi, Nash. Go ahead.
4: Hey, I think you guys are being totally unfair. It wasn't 23 trucks that hit the bridge. It was one truck. And why are we taking out it out on a small business owner who's trying to employ jobs? you has got 22 trucks that are seized. These are independent drivers. They should be going after the driver. And hey, who knows? Maybe he panicked. Maybe there's, let the investigation do it before you guys create a big media circus around this. And I, and I don't like the fact of the racial bias that you have of people on the phone from India, are we going to stop people from using the phone? Come on. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Well, is it fair to shut this company down? The company is suspended, Paul, pending this investigation. I, I, I think we
0: should deal with the racial bias. There's no racial bias here at all. I don't know what that, he's talking about. As far as the uh, company being shut down, uh, there's uh, you know the government's come out and said they're not participating with the investigation. So, yeah, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. of course, we don't yeah. know the details about that, but that's pretty important. Um, and uh, they've looked at it and they've made a decision. And these are the rules and they're applying the rules, presumably. And if it turns out that there's a, uh, you know, down the road, some explanation and they're participating with the investigation, the company can can uh, continue to operate. I mean, the, yes, it is mm. one company that did it. But the government has said that they're not participating with the investigation. We know what that means. You know, they're they're not talking to them. And they're not assisting them. Dave
1: in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Go ahead.
5: Oh, Hey, Mike. Paul, thanks for taking my call. Here's, yeah. here's a couple of points. Your first, the, the first point, point. Uh, your uh, one of the first points is uh, the first call I made is that it's the responsibility of the shipper. It. No, it's not. As soon as that thing touches down on your deck, that is your responsibility to make sure that that load is safely tied down and it's going to clear any obstacles in the way. Second point. Third caller made about racial bias and stuff like that. That's totally false. There's no racial bias here on this on this subject at all. When you have well, there, certainly thank to- you,
1: thank you for making the point. I, I yeah, I, I listen. Any bringing up any kind of race element to this is 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 completely out of bounds and unacceptable. Mike and Surrey, hey Mike,
4: go ahead. Hey, it's mainly basically people that don't check their loads. I mean, if you have a 53 foot trailer, you know you can get underneath it. But if you're going to go higher than that, measure it. It's just a little bit of extra. And then echoing the other guys that are talking about the cell phone, I see it all yeah. the time, and that's gone back before Bluetooth. Thank you,
1: Mike. James and White Rock. James, go ahead.
4: Easy solution graduate licensing for anybody doing a heavy load truck. Uh, ICBC can put that into effect right away. Full indemnity insurance for all traffic companies so that when they do damage something, they're fully responsible for it on their own versus having taxpayers pay for it. And when a driver does hit an obstacle, they get a prohibition on their license for six months until they're retrained. Pretty easy. Thank you. Thank
1: you for that, Paul. What do you think of that idea? We got 30 seconds here.
0: All considerations, and I'll bet the government's looking at many of those things uh really it does come down to what your first what your caller said a moment ago you're responsible for that load inspect your truck before you get back into the driver's seat and start driving uh, and uh, make sure you're you're aware and cognizant of what you're doing it is your job when you're behind the wheel driving a truck paul
1: thank you for coming on today i appreciate it my pleasure All right, let's talk about home prices in Metro Vancouver. Did you see that report just out the other day from RateHub and measured the income in Vancouver to afford the average-priced home in the city, nearly $250,000 in annual income required to afford the average home? Who makes this kind of money? Not many people here. I spoke to Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader on this show a couple of days ago about housing prices. And this is central to his campaign right now, is to make housing more affordable. Listen to what he says here to me about the price of housing in the United States compared to Canada. Have a listen. Here he is.
4: It's a simple matter of supply and demand. Uh, why is it so why is it so dirt cheap to buy
0: a home in big American cities dirt cheap like it's not cheap it's dirt cheap um, even in big prosperous cities with really high incomes because they allow people to build homes it's really that simple
1: yeah, he says housing is dirt cheap in the United States compared to Canada and he says a lot of it has to do with taxes, and red tape here on our side of the border. Let's discuss with my guest now, Adil Danani. Adil is with the Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Adil, thanks for coming on today. Mike, pleasure uh, being on the show again. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So what do you think of that argument there from Polyev? He says housing is is not just cheap in the United States. He says it's it's dirt cheap. Is that true? Right.
3: You know what, I think that, um, I mean, I think you can apply what he's saying to certain areas and, you know, uh, across Canada. I mean, the reality is, you know, we're in Vancouver and um, we have, you know, we're landlocked. You know, we've got mountains to one side, water to the other. You know, you know that narrative. There is a limited amount of land available for redevelopment. You go to places like Houston, Texas, and you've got flat land for hundreds of miles out of the city core. Um, naturally you're going to be able to build more and naturally you're going to be able to bring more supply on with, uh, with lower price points. So I think there is certainly some validity to what he's saying. I like that he's campaigning and his platform is pushing, you know, more affordable housing. Um, I think locally, Mike, if we bring this back to like a micro level, you know, our premier, uh, David Eby, is endeavoring to keep uh, municipalities accountable. And, you know, they've been the gatekeeper of our housing stock for too long. And yeah. this spring, earlier this spring, he came out and said, look, we may, um, we may supersede the municipalities. And I think that was, um, you know, that was a, that was some, there was some posturing there. He wanted the municipalities to start taking this seriously. And they need to move this agenda forward. And I think he's making a valid point. And I think it's been too long. We've been waiting on municipalities to unlock that much-needed inventory. I mean, last week we had the city of Burnaby for the first time, and their their zoning for single-family has been archaic. Like, I, I'm a resident of Burnaby. They've been great bringing on high-density living, you know, big high-rises in Metrotown and Brentwood. But what about what about in the single-family neighborhoods? That zoning hasn't evolved in multiple decades. Now we're finally seeing um, the mayor, who's fantastic. Um, put forward new policies for laneway homes, put forward policies for more duplex inventory. And it's interesting, yeah. Vancouver's kind of taken the lead on this. Now we're seeing Burnaby, um, you know, follow closely behind. And I'm optimistic um, and hopeful that we're going to start seeing much more inventory. Now, again, this isn't a light switch. It's not going to happen in 12 months, but I'm hopeful in the next two, three years, the conversation we're having today has evolved and we're not seeing as much upward pressure on prices because there is more supply out there.
1: Yeah, there sure is a lot of talk about it, and as politicians of every stripe at every level of government seem to be talking about getting more stuff built that people can afford. Let me play another clip here for you, Adil, from the Conservative leader, Polyev here on the show the other day here. as he, Again, he says he makes the point, he, he thinks that housing in Canada should be not just reduced in price and affordable. He says it should be cheap. Cheap housing is what he says we should have here. Here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. We need to build more homes.
0: Canada has the fewest homes per capita of any country in the G7 after eight years of Trudeau and the NDP. Even though we have the most land to build on, which is incredible, we have far more land than all of those other countries. But we should have more housing by a long shot, and we should have the cheapest housing
4: in the world.
1: Well, okay, he says we have a lot of land in Canada to build up. Well, obviously, we're a massive country by geography, but as you pointed out, I I think very, very succinctly and correctly is we're landlocked here in Vancouver. I mean... You know, there's not a lot of land to build up. What about crown land, like government-owned land in Metro Vancouver? That's another thing that he's been talking about. Why don't we sell off or or do long-term leases on public land and build on that? Is that an option? I think that is. That
3: certainly is. I mean, I think we're going to see more of that, especially in in British Columbia. Um, Reserve land, we're we're starting to see a little bit more as a big project approved just in Kitsilano um, on Native Reserve. It's a joint venture with one of the bigger developers in Vancouver. Um, yeah. I think he, he brings up a valid point. I mean, a Scotia Bank report came out uh, late last year, found exactly what um, what he noted. It uh, found that we have in Canada the lowest number of new housing units per 1,000 res- residents of any G7 country. So the number of housing units um, per capita has been falling since 2016. So we're not keeping up with the immigration. We're not keeping up with the demand. Um, sharp, sharp population growth. Um, means we need more housing, and you know we've we've talked about supply at nauseum, but you know we need to hit um, the ground hard on this topic, um, and we need to get the message across. Look, we've had a lot of clients that live here in Greater Vancouver, and you know what, Mike? They're just they're just priced out. Yeah. The dream of owning a single family home is not coming to fruition. We've had a lot of clients that are looking at the option and have already made the move to Alberta. Um, you know Calgary. Um, if you look at the Korea numbers, uh, the Canadian United Association um, in the first quarter of, of uh, 2023 showed that about 30,000 people moved to the province, from largely from BC and Ontario. And naturally, you know that's no surprise. We have the highest housing prices in Canada, and yeah. I think that's that's the cost of living conversation and a whole host of other reasons, right? Like housing, the dream of affording a home. Prices are a third in Calgary than what they are here. So you're going to buy a townhouse here for 1.2 million. You can buy something for four or 450 thousand dollars in Calgary. You know yeah. they've got the single rate tax system, lower lower gas tax, higher wages. So there is a compelling conversation there for local residents. You know, will we get affordability well, here, Mike? Yeah, you know, yeah, I hope so.
1: But but then but then you know but then you got to live in Calgary, right? <laughs> I mean, who wants to move to Alberta? I mean, obviously some people do, but. For people who are born here, or they grew up here, or they moved here because they love the place, I mean, we've got one of the most beautiful cities in the world, why would anyone want to leave? You know, and for people who, a lot of people may say, look, I've got no option if I want to buy. I understand sure. that. But when you take a look at, like, talk to me a little bit about how much is government the problem here? Because this is the thing that. Polyev keeps saying, "Well, this is government. We got to remove these gatekeepers, Absolutely. and the taxes are too high. The regulations yeah. are, are too are too cumbersome. The, the permitting yeah. process is too expensive and t- and and time consuming." Is that true? Like when you take a look at the United States, he says, there, "Well, there's lower taxes and less regulation in the United States." And you got to admit, I'm I'm taking a look. Speaking of Korea, I'm taking a look. at Canadian Real Estate Association numbers here. Uh, so basically, the a standard home in Canada is about double the cost of a, a standard home in the United States.
4: Sure. And
1: yeah, true. how much of that is government's fault?
4: So that's a,
3: that's a very good question. Look, if you look at what the government here in British Columbia has done since 2017, what have they done? We had massive headlines in 2017 about foreign buyers. The Asian market is taking over, you know, um, yeah, the Vancouver market, they're driving up prices. What did they do? They implemented uh, a 15% foreign buyer tax. Right. Um, shortly after, that was, that was increased to 20%. We're hitting the demand side of the equation. What did they do after that? They put in uh, a speculation tax, a vacancy tax. This year, we had a national ban on foreign buyers. This is hitting the demand side of the equation. This is politicking, and this isn't good policy. And I think now, though, with David Eby at the helm, I'm hopeful and optimistic. And I think the industry is. You know, he has a lot of open dialogue with, with um, you know, with all the, the, the important stakeholders here locally to bring on more supply. So to, to answer your question, um, we're now starting to, to talk about and implement policy on the supply side versus the demand side. We know that that was all smoke and mirrors, like the, the demand's not going anywhere. We need, to, we need more inventory to, yeah. to satisfy local demand um uh, immigration demand and just generally speaking especially Vancouver, like it's it's not gonna be cheap ever like i think there's a general acceptance around that but could it be more affordable like a quarter million dollars to afford afford an average home is really concerning because the average income in bc is you know just north of sixty thousand
5: dollars
1: all right, talking Metro home prices, Adil Danani is my guest. Tons of calls. Roger in Vancouver. Hi, Roger. Go ahead.
5: Hi, guys. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to call in and say one thing I've noticed in the uh, in the past eight years for the Liberal government and the federal policies, what they've done, is everything they've, they've done has seemed to want to limit, lower the monthly payments on, on housing. housing on a, effectively, that doesn't affect the principal. When you, when you give people a lower interest rate, give them things like insured loans under the CMHC, just put more money in their pocket, and that drives the price up. Supply is a big part of this problem, but we really need to look at policy and how. And really, we actually need to go through some pain the next mm-hmm. little while. Let's eliminate the CMHC home mortgage counseling. Let's make mortgages uh, hard to get. And go go. Th- when, when, okay, downs- when you
1: say when you say we need to go through some pain, like what? What are you saying? We need to go through a recession need- or some sort of downturn.
5: The, the cost of the, the principal cost of a house costs too much for people to afford. That's been established. Yeah. Yeah. Especially under these interest rates, housing pricing needs to come down. Supply of the goods is a good is one part of the problem, but you also need to make it, you know, in, in a sense, a house should cost roughly thirty five percent of your annual income. And right now in Vancouver, up to sixty five.
1: Okay, okay, okay. okay. Thank, thank you for that. Adil, I'm not sure where he was going, but to be honest with you, but you know, is there a correction coming here? Like some people have said, oh, right. we're in the biggest housing bubble ever. I don't know. Do you see a bubble bursting here? So uh, to the caller's question uh, or point about our uh,
3: uh, 65% of our income going towards uh, mortgage costs, that's that's been the general case for over a decade. Um, I think now, like if you look, if you break it down, let's dollarize what a typical purchase would cost you. So let's say you're a buyer, you want to buy a two-bedroom condo in Burnaby for $800,000. You're going to be putting 10% down. You're going to get CMHC uh, insured mortgage, so you're going to get financed for $700,000. Right. So, Mike, right now it's seven hundred dollars for every hundred thousand dollars borrowed. So now you're looking at a monthly cost of forty-nine hundred dollars uh, plus, stra- plus strata, plus property taxes. You're well north of fifty-five hundred. Tell me how many millennials can afford that? I would argue that's nearly a hundred percent of their yeah. take-home um, after-tax income. So yeah. I, I agree. We need we need more affordability, but. Right now, the rates are, are essentially the biggest part of the equation that are impacting people's ability to get into the market, number one. Number two, um, I think that uh, we may see some more affordability. We may see some price correction, especially in the condo market, because those, those buyers are the most naturally are the most rate sensitive, right? The 25 to 35 year demographic, year old demographic are the ones that are getting and purchasing, getting into the market and purchasing these condos and they're not going to be able to afford or sustain those larger payments.
1: Squeeze a couple more calls in here. Dave in Coquitlam. Hi, Dave. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. Good morning, Mike, and to your guests. Yeah, I've been in a commercial uh, residential construction here in Vancouver for almost 30 years. And, I mean, 20 years ago, I was complaining about this red tape with the municipalities trying to get things done. I said, in 20 years, no one's going to be able to afford a home in this town right that's what i said it was just unbelievable to try and get anything done and you know i mean finally it's 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 come right they've just it's just been almost impossible to get things done for these builders has right? it gotten
1: worse over the past 20 years the red tape it's got
4: worse and all the small yeah. municipalities have jumped on board with the small regional uh governments following the same path as the, as the bigger governments like you had areas where it was um you know, a regional district, and now they're making it so difficult for people to build. It's just, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just terrible, right, for trying to get anything done. So, in BC, BC, and it, it, I know a lot of people are pulling out and going to Alberta and Saskatchewan, right? So, yeah. anyways, thank you, okay. Dave. Thanks thank you, for Dave. For the, thank you, Bye.
1: Dave, for the call. I appreciate a view from the front line of home builders for sure. Chris and Langley, Chris, you got thirty seconds here.
4: Okay, I just say the cart before the horse demand, immigration is a huge one nobody ever talks about. I can tell you in Langley where uh, development's unfettered, it's unbelievable. I w- moved out here 10 years ago, lots of elbow room, now traffic's terrible. My daughter's sitting in a portable, portables is a thing, can't get a doctor's appointment. So you talk about development and bringing all these people in, we live one of the best places in the world. People are coming here from all across Canada and all across the world. Demand is an issue. Shut that down until we get the, uh, the supply issue under uh, control, for sure. But to say just build, 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 terrible idea.
1: Thank you, Chris, for the call. Edil, it's always great to have you on here. Thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Let's talk about health care in Surrey now and elsewhere south of the Fraser River. Do the residents of Surrey... And neighboring communities get a raw deal here. The short end of the stick when it comes to health care. I'm talking about emergency care. Got one hospital in Surrey. is outrageous for a community of this size and rapid population growth. Yes, I know the government has promised a new hospital. We've been listening to that for years. For people who need emergency care, for expectant moms... Do they have adequate maternity care? I'm going to discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Randeep Gill. You you must check out his TikTok video on this. His viral TikTok on this, check it out. Let's listen to a little bit of it here right now, and then we'll speak to Dr. Gill. Have a listen. Here he is on TikTok.
2: The illest children and the sickest adults need to be transferred out of Memorial Hospital for a higher level of care because we do not have the life-saving interventions here locally at south of the Fraser. And this is true for people living from Patolo Bridge all the way to Hope. Yet, this happens every single day, it has happened for decades. This would never be acceptable if this was residents of Vancouver that needed to leave their city for life-saving interventions when time is of the essence. This is due to lack of proactive planning and chronic underinvestment in our city.
1: All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Randeep Gill, emergency room doctor, Surrey Memorial Hospital. Very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Gill, thank you for coming on
4: today. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, great job in the TikTok. I I, th- I thought it was really, really great, and I'm interested in the reaction you, you've received to it. What is the the what is the, the fundamental... Message that you wanted to send with that video?
2: Equity or the lack of it—that's uh, the fundamental message. You know, we uh, we south of the Fraser, not the residents. Uh, you know, have have equality. We don't have equality when it comes to healthcare spending and uh, access to healthcare. Everything is concentrated in a centralized model uh, north of the Fraser, and that is. Really, what we want to highlight and make sure that uh, you know we we want to champion that voice to make sure that we have pure equity.
1: Okay, let's talk a little, little bit about that. And you highlight some of this in the in the video. So let's say someone's having a say someone's having a heart attack. They need emergency care. How often do people have to be like, transferred out of Surrey for care?
2: Well, uh, last year about fourteen hundred residents that were critically. Dying patients had to be transferred. Uh, We have zero uh, resources to take care of anybody with uh, very significant trauma. Anything to do with uh, neurosurgical issues or brain bleeds, heart attacks that need intervention. They all need to be transferred either to Royal Columbian, which is uh, at least uh, 30% of the time over capacity. And then those patients then need to transfer further to Vancouver General uh, and that's, that's, and, and it, those are the life-saving interventions. But when we even talk about people dying of cancer, uh, gynecological cancer in particular, those patients 100% have to be transferred because the only surgical option is at VGH. Uh, and the second option is in Victoria. And so when we look at Vancouver, uh, there's six full-time equivalent positions for surgeons uh, that supply 4.5 million people. And there's no concept of uh, even bringing gynecological uh, um, surgical interventions here, even in the new hospital that's proposed. So, you know, the reason why we're raising the voice now highlighting all these issues is because now is the time we can actually make a change, even in the footprint of the current uh, proposed hospital. Uh, Once it's Hmm. built, it's hard to add um, services. We see that with our existing structure at CERN Memorial. We're definitely outgrown it, outpaced it. We don't have the critical interventions that we should see in a state-of-the-art hospital now. Like if you compare to St. Paul's, uh, you know, that's being built. We, we At Ceremon Memorial, which we're taking care of you know, at a minimum 650,000 residents, but then we also take in, because our pediatric department is open to people from Maple Ridge, uh, Langley, Delta. So you can just see the number of patients that we, uh, so, uh, you know, take care of are responsible for that all those patients need to be transferred.
1: Speaking to Dr. Randeep Gill, Surrey Memorial Hospital, how about expectant moms, maternity care? What is that like in the city of Surrey? A lot of people are being shipped out of Surrey for for that type of care too?
2: Absolutely. The, the, the department's only made for 4,000 uh, births. Uh, the, last, the, the last year's statistics show that uh, Surrey has um, given birth to 6,000 babies. Or, or, and... You know, the, the maternity, I have to give it up to the, the maternity nurses. They work, they're working, um, you know, overtime. They, then they'll still see another thousand babies. Uh, so, so that means that the capacity is 4,000, 5,000 babies are delivered at Surrey Memorial. A thousand need to be transferred elsewhere. And that's, you know, and, and now you've lost your relationship with not only your hospital, your gynecologist, the staff that you've been seeing and working with for the, the last 36 to 38 weeks. Uh, unless if it's a plant C-section, now, you know, you have to go elsewhere. And that's, that's you know, that's, it's already a stressful time for pregnant yeah. moms. And, and now, you you know, you have to go elsewhere. I've heard even some, some had to give birth because the bed was only available in Chilliwack, you know. And so they had to leave Surrey and then go to Chilliwack. I mean, that's, that's, that's tough. And now that we know that the new hospital does not ha- have any thought to, to have maternity care or... Right. Uh, you know, that's, that, that is where I say that it's poor planning. It's there's it's not a good proactive approach here.
1: Yeah, and, and on that point, you know, is this a, a missed opportunity here now? We take a look at the, the massive budget for this new Surrey Hospital and then lacking that maternity care that is needed. Like, would you say they should do a do-over on that and maybe exp- expand the project?
2: I mean that's that's uh, you know one can only hope for certain things. I mean that's really on the ministry and and and, and the powers of be. But what I would what we've been also advocating is having a second tower built at Surrey Hospital uh, because it's already centralized care. Now when you when you go to a new hospital, 25% at minimum is spent on overhead of administrative cost. I mean to me, I find that that's not really directly impacting patient care. If you turn around and bring it into an institution. You're not trying to centralize it, but you're saying, like, look, the infrastructure already exists. The, administ- uh, the, uh, the overhead and the, um, the services already exist. Let's tie it into an existing structure and bring, all, uh, bring a second tower at Surrey Memorial. That, that, would, that would absolutely impact it. Because right now, if you have a, any neurosurgical issue, you would have to leave Surrey. That's, that's yeah. one thing. And, and those are times of the essence. So essentially, if somebody has a stroke, they have to leave Surrey. I mean, yeah. there's nothing south of that. What is? I'm that? Not talking about. Sorry, go
1: ahead. I, I would just—I was going to say, Doctor Gill, how would you describe conditions right now at Surrey, Surrey Memorial? You have been among a group of doctors been bravely speaking out here on the issue. Are you guys still bursting at the seams? There, what is it like right now?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it takes time. It takes time uh, and effort to coordinate care that you can't provide. So it's easy to transfer. I, I wouldn't say easy. Person is dying, and and you want to send them to an operating room the transfer time to the operating room should be within the existing structure. Now we have to put them in an ambulance, they have to wait in traffic, they have to go over a bridge and then be offloaded and then get to an operating room. I mean, that doesn't work, you know, that doesn't work. And when we're talking about the, the three top leading causes of death, of stroke, heart attack, and trauma right? I mean, that that's uh, our, the biggest population boom that's happened in British Columbia has been Surrey, uh, yes. and we that, and that's why we feel it, right? So, so I, I, and this doesn't undermine any of the, the smaller hospitals or the smaller population. I feel for residents of Abbastford and Chilliwack because they're they are getting an even rarer deal, right? For us, we go over, you know, Patalo and we're there, by, we're closer to Royal Columbia and closer to where the actual intervention is going to be, but this this new hospital is not still not going to have those life-saving interventions, and and those those residents are still going to be needing to transfer to to Columbia or VGH, yeah. and that there needs to be a fundamental change in in how we look at uh, you know the, uh, the population growth, and and not only that, but there should be pure equity south of the Fraser too. Yeah.
1: And a few minutes more with my guest, Dr. Randy Gill, emergency room doctor, Surrey Memorial Hospital, speaking out about healthcare in Surrey and elsewhere south of the Fraser. And you should absolutely check out his video on this topic on on TikTok. I, I wonder, Dr. Gill, if sometimes you you feel any any pressure from the health authority or anyone else to just hey, just t- don't be speaking out on this stuff. We don't like it. I've heard. I've heard other doctors say that they feel pressure to be to be quiet, and I'm wondering if if you've ever sensed that. Let me play a clip here for you from one of your colleagues, Doctor Urbane Ip, and he describes a story here about wanting to put up a pretty simple idea, put up a poster in the uh, the crowded emergency room at Surrey Memorial, and some of the manage on people on the administration side didn't like it. Here's here's him telling the story. Then I'll get your thoughts.
4: We tried to design a sign a poster on the, uh, to put in the, waiting, uh, in the waiting room to tell patient that we are having resource problem so today we might be, uh, there might be delay seeing you. But if you have a heart attack, if you have a really critical illness, we'll see you first. But those minor things, you might have to have a long delay. Fraser Health, they didn't want us to put that on. They pulled that poster down.
1: Okay fraser health pulled the poster down and he's also talked about how he's felt pressure to to be quiet and not speak up about these issues dr gill is anything like that going on i mean do you ever feel pressure not to speak up
2: i I think it takes courage to speak up um pressure is always uh is is uh, I, i have not nobody has approached me personally to not speak up um you know and and so I can say that with great honesty. And I do know about the poster and, and you know, it, it, it's a tough, tough thing to comment on because at that time we were going through a very, really tough time. And, 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 and like every other hospital as well. And so, you know, I, I understand that Fraser Health, uh, you know, and, and all our physicians, we want to, you know, we want to show that, you know, your community is going to be taken care of. Um, and that's why we're really advocating for for better care moving forward in the future so where we are today I understand, but um our goal is that you know we want to have uh, you know equity like if we look at even if we look at uh, lionsgate hospital uh you know it was announced that there was gonna be an expansion of one hundred and sixty six million they're adding mm. you know one hundred and eight beds to an already existing two hundred and sixty eight uh, so you know bringing it to three hundred and seventy six beds so what I'm saying is that you know we really should be looking at Looking forward, how are we going to improve the care for patients here now and in the future? And you know, North is only supplying nine, ninety thousand people. They have a neurosurgical ward. They have everything. I you know I, I applaud that you know they expanded well, but this new hospital I'm not applauding it because you know it's it, we're only adding 168 beds to a population that is you know one fourth of North End um, or, 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 or four times North End. And uh, and not getting the services. So, uh, you know, anybody that gets upset uh, with the numbers, uh, then that they should, they, you know, that's that's their issue. I think, you know, numbers don't lie. Uh, we're not finger pointing. I'm not finger pointing. I'm not I'm not calling anybody out. Um, I'm just speaking to the numbers. And the the public has every reason to know this because it's your tax dollars that is being spent here. This is not the yeah. ministry money. This is the this is money that belongs that's your hard work money that you pay taxes on and that you blindly give over so that you're taken care of. And all I'm showing is the numbers don't lie and the the access to healthcare is not equal. So when it's not equal, then I have a problem with that being in healthcare because my job is to make sure people are are safe and healthy. And like every other physician out there, So I'm not the only one speaking out, and I'm not the only one that feels this way. Many people come speak with me, and others, and have spoken out, even way like you know, decades before us. But the ministry needs to take notice. And now, you know, there are other forms like TikTok and social media that puts the numbers out there. And anybody that has an issue with those numbers, that is that that is not a physician problem. That's that's you know, management needs to take a look at that.
1: Right. Speaking about healthcare in Surrey, Dr. Randeep Gill, Surrey Memorial Hospital. Are uh, Surrey residents and other residents south of the Fraser getting shortchanged here on on healthcare? I think it's pretty clear that they are. When you take speaking of taxpayers' money, when we take a look at this second hospital now planned for Surrey, and we've been hearing these promises for years, two point eight eight billion dollars. So the price tag for this second hospital in Surrey has, has ballooned here construction set to be complete by 2029 so you know we still got six years to wait here and we know how these things all, all almost always seem to go over schedule um, you know when you look at that project and you've touched on a lot of this already but what would be a better way forward like if you had that pool of money 2.8 billion I mean is there a better way to spend that other than what they're doing here at this hospital
2: well to be uh, to to be fair the 2.88 billion uh does also include the cancer component so the beds that we are talking about is about 50% of it is going to the cancer um building um or care and then and the rest is coming uh, over the site so the 1.44 yeah. And so, so that does that equate to 168 beds an ER? No, I'm 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 not excited about it, but for reasons why, because if I was to work in that emergency department, I would still have to send patients out for their life-saving interventions, and now I'm actually further away from the life-saving intervention than where my existing facility of Surrey Memorial Hospital is. So, you know, does does it impact care for those people that truly need emergency care? I think that it adds delay because okay. we're not bringing those services.
1: Okay, I, I congratulate you for speaking out on this important topic and thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at
4: com. Thanks again for listening.